When's the last time you recommended milk? After all, milk is a key component of an overall healthy diet. The protein and calcium in dairy milk are natural sources of bone and muscle building nutrients. Dairy milk can even help reduce high blood pressure. It's a simple prescription for prevention rooted in evidence and proven over time. So maybe it's time to rethink milk. Simple, healthy. That's the science of milk. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. I'm Blair Begum. And I'm Mochola Male. This is the CMAJ Podcast. I just want to apologize ahead of time. Um, the raspiness in my voice is not that I'm becoming a jazz singer, is that I am <laughs> having still going through a cold and a cough. So excuse me for sounding not my bubbly self. Not uh, September was a bad month for people with colds. So, Jola, there's a new paper out in CMAJ, a guideline titled Preventative Care Recommendations to Promote Health Equity. And as soon as we saw this, we wanted to jump on it. You were really keen. Do you want to lead us off? For me, finding ways to embed health equity into providing health care is something that's very dear to me and I'm very passionate about. Oftentimes, I think because of the way we've trained, we don't necessarily see how we can, you know, embed EDIA work into our work. And this paper, why it was really compelling for me was that it really spells out in primary care how to promote equity uh, to um, disadvantaged populations. And quite a few populations mentioned in this paper, everything from cancer to cardiovascular risk, diabetes, depression, infectious disease like HIV and tuberculosis. The, the list goes on. It's very comprehensive. Is there anything you're most keen to delve into with the authors today? Well, I think for me, as uh, my interest in surgical oncology and my practice being surgical oncology, that is always something that is like of interest to me. But actually, really for me, what actually stood out was the mental health and, you know, them talking about depression screening. And mm -hmm. that to me was, I thought was quite interesting because, you know, we do know that different populations and different racialized people experience um, mental health differently, and the symptoms and the signs are quite different. So that was something that was that stood out to me that I would love to explore more with them. Totally, I'm excited for that one. So let's jump into it. We have two of the co-authors uh, to discuss these guidelines with us. That's coming up. We have two members of the team here today to speak with us. Dr. Nav Prasad is the lead author. He's the Canadian Research Chair in Health Justice, and he's a family and community physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And Dr. Aisha Lofters is a family physician and chair in implementation science at Women's College Hospital, also in Toronto. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So I just want to start off with that this is a very extensive study of equity in medicine. Were there any surprises for either of you as you were putting together the guidelines? I would say it wasn't a surprise. I think we were very purposeful about pulling together 
the panel that we had, both in terms of healthcare providers and patients who provided their expertise. But our panel really consisted of a lot of people who were either women who were racialized or both, and people who had a real passion for health equity. And I think the fact that that is so unusual in guideline panels isn't surprising, but I think it's definitely something worth noting. So why is that unusual in guideline panels to have a diverse group of people? Well, I think the why is a big question. I think that ties into why when you think of leadership and think of lots of social hierarchies. But we do know from a lot of the work that previous work that NAV has done is that a lot of guideline review panels really are dominated by white men. And I think we have to always consider what that's going to mean in terms of where health equity and lived experience play out in guidelines. Sure. And NAV, what was anything that surprised or jumped out at you as you guys were putting together this study? I think building on what Aisha said, it was relatively easy to recruit a panel that did reflect the diversity of Canada and namely included racialized women. We posted in medical journals and we offered people compensation for their time in participating. And we had an overwhelming response. We had dozens of qualified applicants who we could not invite to join the panel. So that was a surprise given that most panels don't look like ours. Were you, is this something that when talking to primary care practitioners that's been brought up that there needs to be, or maybe just in your experience working with others, that there needs to be more awareness built around the inequities in our healthcare system? I think for both Nav and I working clinically as family physicians and seeing firsthand patients experiencing inequities, we both realized from our day-to-day being at the front line that a lot of guidelines that are out there, um, people experiencing disadvantage are often not mentioned or there might be like a line in the guideline. So I think that we both experienced that. And I think we, like the whole world experienced through COVID-19, this very obvious, um, it was very in our face. What we had long known had long existed as far as how these disadvantages can actually play out, right? It, it played out in terms of who was affected the most by this global pandemic. And there seemed to be some momentum during and after the pandemic to actually now starting to really think about health inequities, not as an afterthought, not after the work has been done, but from the very beginning. So I think for both of us, it was having that clinical experience, those clinical frustrations, and then seizing the momentum that was finally there. For sure. And Nav, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think maybe there's some recognition of inequities. And we know we've all seen statements from hospitals and universities about the need to address inequities. Our guidance addresses what primary care providers can do on a day-to-day basis. We discuss core topics like cancer screening, cardiovascular disease screening, and talk about how primary care providers can perform those services equitably. Maisha, you guys actually had some recommendations around lowering the age of cancer screening. Can you describe this for us? So for colorectal cancer screening specifically, what we've talked about in the guidance is beginning outreach at the age of 45 instead of at the age of 50, because we recognize that, you know, we are seeing, when you look at the literature, at least younger ages of diagnosis, specifically for people who do experience disadvantage. And we know that sometimes outreach can take time, right? You have to have sometimes many more than one conversations before people are ready to start screening. But we also do say that if people are ready, that there shouldn't be barriers for them and they should be able to go ahead and screen if they are interested in doing so. And um, 
I guess, like you know, as a surgical oncologist, why not just lower the age of screening for everyone when we talk about colon cancer? So I think one of the things with these guidelines is that we recognize that when it comes to implementation, there has to be some work done, but it might be that for the guideline to be able to be implemented, that it would apply to everyone. So for example, with HPV self-collection, which is one of our recommendations Mm -hmm. in Australia, they do have this as part of the screening program and it is available to everyone. So that might be the best way to implement it. But I think we just want to make sure that we keep health equity front and center when we do implement. Why haven't we implemented the self-screening for cervical cancer? So I think the first thing is you've got to have the infrastructure in place for HPV testing. So the first step is to shift from pap testing or cytology testing to HPV testing so that even when you're going to the doctor's office and getting on the exam table, that what's happening is an HPV test, not a cytology test. Many provinces, in Ontario included, are making that move. So it, it is coming. So I uh, certainly hope that as they start to shift from pap screening to HPV, that HPV self-collection will be part of it as well. I didn't note in the guidelines any recommendations regarding breast cancer and racialized people. Is there a reason you guys didn't include that in the guidelines? I think there are a number of important topics we didn't address. Breast cancer, prostate cancer screening would be examples of those. We had to prioritize certain topics based on limited resources, and we considered a few factors, including the burden of the disease, the effectiveness of screening interventions, and the likelihood that equitable access to preventive care could promote health equity or equity in health outcomes. And so some important topics like breast cancer screening and prostate cancer screening got left out. Potentially, we could include those topics if we were to repeat the process again in five years. Is it possible to imagine how this might cause some conflict for a physician with their patients? Like, how should a family physician explain to a patient that they'll be screened five years later than another patient? Yes, I think it is possible that some people might view attempts to address inequities as unfair. And I think our rationale is that we des- we observe inequities in health outcomes. We observe that people with a low income, racialized people are... Um, generally experience poor outcomes and have poor access to care and experience discrimination within the healthcare system. We could continue to bemoan those inequities and talk about how sad it is that there are bad outcomes and unfair outcomes, or we can change what we do in order to address inequities. So there's a decision that needs to be made whether or not we are content just to observe inequities or we want to change things. I think there is an argument to be made for many of these interventions that it could make sense to apply them to the general population. Taking the example of colorectal cancer screening, starting screening at age 45 versus age 50 is expected to avert one colorectal cancer death per 1,000 screen. That's true in the general population. Our recommendation is focused on people experiencing disadvantages. So we would leave it to others to provide guidance that would apply to the general population. But I think given the inequities that can easily be observed, it makes sense to prioritize people for care. What's another recommendation, Nav, do you think would be the most impactful? I think considering the burden of disease and the effectiveness of intervention, likely the most effective 
interventions that we recommend will be related to colon cancer screening and cardiovascular disease. However, I think there are some other really important recommendations, and I'm glad I don't have to choose the most important one because I think actually part of primary care is providing comprehensive care. And from the perspective of patients, I don't think like a person who has depression would view depression screening as less important. That's another example where our guidance differs from some existing guidance. So we recommend depression screening for people experiencing disadvantages, whereas some existing guidance does not recommend screening. Other guidance does recommend screening. Interestingly there, one of the rationales for not recommending screening for depression in other guidance is that there's an assumption that people will receive assessments for depression as part of routine care. So organized screening programs are therefore not needed for depression because everyone's getting a clinical assessment. Whereas our guidance is focused on people experiencing disadvantages who may not be receiving adequate care or any care in some situations. So that would be an argument for depression screening. Also, one of the potential problems with depression screening is sometimes people who answer yes to questions about feeling down, for example, may have a problem that's not depression. And so in studies of the accuracy of depression screening instruments, that would be viewed as a problem. But in primary care, that may actually be an opportunity to talk to a patient about something that's bothering them or maybe to offer them a support, such as a social support that could help address an issue, even if that issue is not depression. So for the depression screening, a physician, like I go to my physician, is this something that should be done on like a yearly basis or what is the recommendation around that? For many of the recommended interventions, there are not comparative studies assessing the effects of different frequencies of screening. So we provide standard advice about providing screening every three to five years based on our judgments made by the panel about what's feasible and likely to be beneficial. I'm wondering, as you improve access to screening, you're bound to find more people who require follow-up from positive screenings. What type of tricks have you guys used in your system to get access to that follow-up? Because I know right now it's so hard to get people the care that they need when they need it. If we're finding more things, which is great, what type of ways have you been able to take that to the next step? I think one comment that I can make with regards to that is that we certainly are both lucky enough to work in team-based primary care models. So I think if we start to think about policy implications from our recommendations, one of our recommendations is about improving access to primary care so people are able to access primary care and people with disadvantage would be prioritized for that. But I think also taking that further, when we look at quality of primary care, that working in an interprofessional team really does allow for you to have team members, whether it's social workers, pharmacists, et cetera, who you were able to really truly collaborate with in a team model to help you support your patients. But we also know that many Ontarians, and more likely if you're experiencing disadvantage, do not have access to these team-based primary care models. Many of the interventions we recommend could be implemented today. For example, you know, depression screening can be administered by asking questions. Other clinicians can ask those questions in interviews, or they can be administered in waiting room surveys or email surveys. And treatments for 
depression can be offered online. There are online counseling programs, online uh, cognitive behavioral therapy programs, and primary care providers are also well-positioned and qualified to prescribe medications where that's appropriate after an appropriate assessment is done. I was One of the surprises for me was how effective um, resources were for families with children who are experiencing poverty. There were a few clinical trials that have showed offering patients relatively simple interventions, such as you know, a one-page sheet of paper that lists uh, social issues and local resources that are available has been shown to meet the needs of these families. So that is something that could be offered entirely within primary care. I think it's also important just in terms of thinking about what happens after people screen positive. I think it's also important just to keep in mind, even though there are resource constraints in our system, people are accessing specialist care all the time. People are visiting hospitals, being seen by surgeons, and being seen by consultants. So when we're talking about screening people who are experiencing disadvantages, I think we have to be careful not to overemphasize resource limitations within the system because people are seeing these same consultants right now. And these are not necessarily people who are always screening positive for cancer. We'll be back after a short break. Are you looking for your next adventure where you can have a meaningful impact? Come explore British Columbia with the help of HealthMatch BC. We're a free health professional recruitment service funded by the government of British Columbia. We're currently recruiting rural physicians of all specialties on behalf of BC's publicly funded health employers. Visit us at healthmatchbc.org rural for more information. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. Just to maybe just to help define it for our audience a bit better is when you're saying people who are experiencing disadvantages, what does that encompass? Sure. So we provide a list. It's based on data about health inequities in Canada. So the list of inequities in the paper would include people with a low income, racialized people, indigenous people, members of the 2S LGBTQ uh, community. And we also specify other groups who might be prioritized for care for specific interventions. For example, we specify that women uh, should be prioritized for cardiovascular disease screening based on inequities in cardiovascular disease outcomes that are thought to be related to discrimination and sexism within the healthcare system and the way that screening and other care is provided today. The recommendation for tuberculosis applies to people who have arrived in Canada within the last five years from a high-incidence country. And what do you think that would look like if we prioritize those who are experiencing disadvantage and we prioritize them for accessing? Like, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not... It's not an easy question to answer, certainly. I mean, I think people have talked about the model as how it works with education, so that based on your address, and perhaps we'd have to think about other metrics of experiencing disadvantage that would then allow for automatic enrollment. 
So I, I think how that would be measured, what that would look like, certainly would take some time to think through. But I think it's something that warrants the time to figure it out, right? To figure out how to do it right. Because I think one of the things that you notice time and time again is if we don't think about health inequities from the get-go, we implement uh, models and programs and systems that actually increase inequities. And then after the fact, we're kind of scrambling to try and tackle those inequities and, and tackle what we call like the low-hanging fruit. What if like a physician, like a practitioner, a primary practitioner is kind of like, well, I don't really, if my patients want to see me, they can see me. If they need colon cancer screening, I get that to them. I don't have any inequities in the way I practice. What's your response to that? Sure. I, I mean, I think those same healthcare providers who believe that they are providing care that's fair probably have read reports about inequities in health outcomes, inequities in the way healthcare is provided, and they have continued to do the hard work of primary care, seeing the patients in front of them, doing the outreach for, for colorectal cancer screening, et cetera. And you know, I would put myself in the category of a clinician who believes that he provides care equitably. But the reality is it's probably not the case. The data would suggest it's not the case that my patients are experiencing similar outcomes, that social gradients don't matter. I sometimes use the analogy of flat earthers. You could present someone who believes that the earth is flat with evidence that the earth is round, and they might say, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. But then they would continue believing that the earth is flat. And a flat healther would be someone who sees reports that describe inequities, but continues practicing medicine as though health outcomes are flat. So flat healthers provide care to patients who come into clinic and do outreach for colon cancer screening without trying to prioritize people who are likely to experience bad outcomes. And that's what we need to change. If we're really going to engage with health inequities, we need to change the core part of what we're doing, which is providing care. So just looking a little forward, this is focused on how physicians can impact health equity, as you mentioned before, Nav. Outside these guidelines, how can physicians just change the way they approach their practice and their patients to increase equity? So for example, how would this work for me as a surgeon? I think maybe, hopefully this is a start to thinking about how we can organize and deliver primary care in a different way. I think there might be analogous work that's done in other disciplines to try and think about how to address inequities through changing the core things that you do every day, the way that you triage referrals, the way that you decide which patients are going to be put on the cancellation list, et cetera. Uh, those are all potential areas where inequities can be at play. I think we all know there are certain rules about who gets prioritized for care and that those rules can be bent or they only apply to some. And it certainly I see that in primary care and I suspect some of the same things apply to consultants. So, I mean, yeah, in terms of who gets prioritized for specialized care, there might be some opportunity to provide guidance and to change the way that practice is being delivered. Aisha, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I would love to see work like what we've done um, being reproduced. So I think, first of all, we would love to keep uh, reviewing the literature every few years. And I think it would be fantastic if we see other specialties taking up the same call. And similarly, taking a look at their guidelines with a health equity focus and health equity priority and thinking through what are the evidence-based actions that you take every day in your specialty and how could those be how could those be adapted or how could those be tweaked a little bit to have a health equity focus? I think that the possibilities are endless for how this work could continue. Aisha, you had mentioned the primary care crisis, and we all know that many Canadians struggle to find a family doctor, and they often end up in walk-in clinics or emergency rooms. What role do episodic care providers like ER docs play in terms of how this guidance can be applied pragmatically? You know, I think there's always the possibility with, especially thinking about walk-in clinics, because as you say, there are more and more people across the country who are using walk-in clinics, both for acute episodic care, but also even as a bit of a stopgap measure for primary care. So I think as much as is is feasible and reasonable within that setting, there are opportunities, I think, for, as Nav said, a question could be asked about, about depression or I think that there are some of these recommendations that we have, many of them are actually quite simple to implement. And I think taking an extra minute or two or a few minutes in a visit can save a lot of time um, down the road and have a, a big uh, health impact. So I, I think that we think of primary care broadly, so not just academic team-based models, but thinking about community-based care, walk-in care, rural, urban, there's lots of applications for these recommendations. But I think it's just a matter of keeping this work going, keeping the momentum that started in the pandemic, and just making sure that a focus on health equity is not just a one-time or short-term thing. Yeah, actually, Aisha said the most important thing. I think the most important thing to do next is to ensure that care actually changes, that practice changes. So yeah, I think the most important thing for us to do, as Aisha was saying, is to ensure that the recommendations are implemented. Many of them can be implemented now. It would also be great to integrate the decision tool that we've developed in electronic health records and make sure they're at the point of care. One small step towards that is we have created an online decision tool at screening.ca where clinicians can determine which interventions apply to a particular patient. Patients could also use the same resource to find out about the care they should be offered. So I, I think that is really the most important point to make is that many of these changes could be made right now. We need to put additional time and resources into changing the policies that need to change. HPV self-testing should be generally publicly funded. Right now, it's only available under certain circumstances. The blood test for tuberculosis should be generally publicly funded. Right now, again, it can only be ordered by specialists in most circumstances. So we need changes from government and clinicians can make changes right now. All of these things require money and resources. And when we're talking about health inequities, when we're talking about racism and sexism, we're definitely talking about money. And our guidance that includes 16 recommendations was all done with a relatively small budget, around $100,000. Other bodies that produce guidance have much larger budgets than we do. And those bodies do important work. And in some cases, we, we cite the work of others. But if we want to address health inequities, we need to invest in this. And so, I mean, one call out here is money. Let's invest more in addressing inequities. Let's maybe a goal could be let's in, try to invest like 
10% of what we invest in guidelines that don't address inequities in guidelines that do address inequities. Right now, we're probably not even at 1%. One quick point, I think there are some examples where focusing on inequities can lead to better care in general. I think one example is the HPV self-test. So, you know, we focus, uh, our guidance is focused on people experiencing disadvantages who may not be getting any screening for cervical cancer right now because they cannot book appointments, they don't want to have a pelvic exam. Uh, And so we recommend offering HPV self-testing that can be done at home. But that's an example of something that if it were rolled out broadly and if the capacity to run HPV testing was increased, likely most patients would prefer it. I think the blood test for tuberculosis is another example. It is effective, accurate, it's cost-effective. If it were more widely available to people experiencing disadvantages, to people who have recently arrived in Canada from a high-incidence country, it could make sense for others to get it. So I think if we lead with inequities, we can end up with a better healthcare system for everyone. Aisha? I think that was a great point to end on. It's a great quote to end on. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for joining us. Dr. Nav Prasad is the Canadian Research Chair in Health Justice and a family physician at St. Michael's Hospital. And Dr. Aisha Lofters is a family physician and the Chair in Implementation Science at Women's College Hospital. Both are in Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right, Jola, a lot of content there. What's your key takeaway from that discussion? Uh, It was really fascinating. Um, I think this is thought-provoking, and hopefully it really gets um, educators um, who are training residents uh, in uh, family medicine and practitioners to trying to find ways to embed equity into the, the work they do. I thought that it was really fascinating talking about using the self-screening for HPV. That mm-hmm. was something that was the first time I've heard about it. And I was like, well, that, you know, makes sense because we're removing some of the barriers of actually being able to go to primary care. Uh, it's similar to like, you know, Ontario Breast Screening Program, over 50, you can self-refer. So, you know, there are ways that we're trying to build equity into the system. And I think for me, it actually makes me think of ways that I already practice or, you know, considerations of when you have a population or when you have a patient that is from a disadvantaged group, how can you make it more equitable for them when accessing healthcare? And I love the idea of empowering people to take it on themselves. Not that it should be that way, but it is a nice sort of stopgap to say, well, you don't have to necessarily see a physician or get into your primary care if we're able to sort of disseminate some of the screening to the population. Nav was mentioning some online ways that people can screen or even receive therapy. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we always talk about implementation. And I feel like this has come up a few times in the past year. We talked about PSA screening and how the guidelines might not recommend uh, screening for everyone who could benefit from it along some race bias uh, with previous data sets. And it, it just seems like it's sort of a perennial conversation that the screening itself might be flawed and that the access to the screening, as we all know, is also pretty flawed. And I'm always wondering, you know, in in the era of burnout for healthcare providers and and also, you know, the extreme lack of access, the extreme workloads that have had family doctors say, I'm sorry, I can't take on more people. Um, You know, how do we actually get this to come to fruition so we can move the needle and and get people early access to, to screening or if needed treatment? I would say that 
you know, talking to my friends who are in uh, family medicine, that this is the part of their job they love. Hmm. It's the paperwork that they hate. Right. And if we can design a system and if we can rethink a system that allows, you know, family physicians to actually do the work that they wanted to do. And, you know, when mm-hmm. I talk to my medical students and residents who want to go into family medicine, they're really passionate about this. They're e- passionate about social justice and about equity work. And so this is in line with what family medicine is purported to be about, right? And it's just right. unfortunate that we burden our family physician colleagues with work that's really not what they they're supposed to be doing but unfortunately yeah you know sometimes uh, specialists are you know we're poor uh communicators and we drop the bag and we leave it in their hands and so you know i think that this is the type of thing that would excite people to be in family medicine, finding a way to combine, you know, things that they see in their environments and being able to actually make a difference in that. And so I do think that we need to, part of redesigning healthcare is to look at like, this is what the population needs and this is what we also are passionate about and trying to like marry those and trying to limit the things that actually cause burnout. And as part of that redesign, making sure that we have, uh, as I think Nav was saying, you know, at St. Mike's, they have those health teams that have lots of resources so that it's not all on a single provider in a single practice to to be able to keep track of all of this. And in some ways, I wonder if this is where health record systems and all this new electronic charting could actually be a benefit in terms of helping to track when people should be screened. I think nine out of 10 epic reminders that pop up in front of my face, I just delete right away. But the screening ones, I feel like maybe that is where artificial intelligence or or computer-based charting can help us 100%. keep track of that in these teams. So maybe a little bit of a glimmer of possibilities there as we, uh, as we strive to implement uh, this very thorough guideline. That's it for this week on the CMAJ podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you can, please do us a favor and like or share our podcast wherever it is you download your audio or just tell your colleagues about it. We'd love to get the word out and get more listeners. This podcast is produced by Podcraft Productions. Big shout out to our <laughs> big shout out to our producer Neil Morrison. I'm Blair Bigham and I'm Mojola Mole. Until next time, be well. <laughs>